Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Dan, how are we doing this evening? Great to be with you, Will. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Uh, Dan, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Uh, sure, Will. So my, my career has really been at the intersection of financial services and uh, and policy. And so I've, you know, in my career, I've served a couple stints in, in government, uh, primarily in, in economic policy, particularly with an international dimension. So sort of hybrid, uh, traditional uh, economic policy, international economic policy, international security affairs. And then on the private sector side, also been uh, working in, in finance and, and the financial sector generally. And so um, so that's kind of a, a backdrop. I mean, just more specifically, I came out of college and uh, I, I graduated from undergrad in 2010. And, uh, you know, these, these seems like it was a long time ago, but it, this was like right after the Iraq surge and we were gearing up for, uh, you know, greater engagement in Afghanistan. And I was very, very passionate about international affairs. Uh, and so my first job out of college was actually um, working in Afghanistan, where I served on the staff of the U.S. commander at the time uh, and spent about a year doing that. Uh, continued on in, in the policy community, but vectored toward, toward, sort of towards uh, my my interest in economics and, and the financial sector, and so ended up at the Treasury Department for my first stint when I worked on um, a lot of the original sanctions programs against Iran in 2012 and 2013. Left back to law school because, as compelling as the the public sector is, I always did uh, feel strongly about having a private sector career. At a law school, ended up back in the financial sector, this time as an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, uh, where I spent three really enjoyable years until I got a call uh, from the uh, Treasury Department in 2019 asking me to rejoin uh, in international affairs. And it was just too too good of a job to pass up because of the opportunity to work on, on so many of these important international economic issues. Did that for about six months. It was a great job. And then the pandemic hit. And uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, Treasury very much became the epicenter for uh, all of the the government's economic response to COVID, essentially. And those of us who had been working on international issues but had relevant skill sets to the domestic economic response were often repurposed, and um, that that was that was the case with me as well. And so I ended up spending most of 2020 working on rescuing the airline industry. Um, which by the time we we left office in uh, in January of 2021 uh, was up to about 94 billion dollars of of total <clears throat> of total funding allocated to the program of which uh, we did a you know hybrid of loans and grants for you know well over 60 billion dollars uh, not small numbers <laughs> uh, and uh, and after I uh, left Treasury. Um, I was looking to do something that would combine these two areas that I'm very passionate about, you know, financial services, markets, uh, as well as public policy. 
And that's when I co-founded my current firm, Amberway Partners, along with two colleagues who I serve with at the Treasury Department. Um, and at Amberwave, really what, what we're focused on is marrying up uh, our expertise in, in policy and our experience with global markets and trying to translate that into uh, investment returns. And so we have a, a number of, uh, of investment strategies that uh, I think we'll, we'll go through today. Um, and, uh, and we are focused on our, leveraging our unique skill set to, uh, to deliver value for investors. That's great. That's great. I, I, w- I want to get back to what you're currently working on in a little bit, but I, I want to back up first and, and ask, uh, ask some questions about your policy experience. Um, you, you've worked at Treasury, you've worked uh, on monetary issues, and you've also worked on you know national affairs and kind of like foreign policy issues, uh, which is super interesting. We, we've had uh, a lot of you know big news over the past couple of years in, in both of those spaces. Um, and, and, and I'm curious... My question for you is, is how well do you think, you know, having worked inside these institutions, how well would you rate their performance overall? Do you think they work pretty well? Do you think they work quite poorly? You know, is it somewhere in the middle? Does it just depend like on case by case? Um, I just look at countries like uh, China and their, their, their state capacity seems to be quite high at this point. They're able to you know, make a decision and, and, and just do things in a way it seems like it is much more difficult for us to do. For example... The CDC in Atlanta was, you know, kind of waving people into the Atlanta airport that had COVID at the start of the pandemic. It was like clearly something like uh, a 12 year old could tell you was probably not the best idea. Um, you know, the visibly sick people, let's wave them into like the busiest airport in the U.S. And they're going to it's a major hub. Uh, it's clearly like like not a great idea. Um, so I, I guess just generally like how well do you would you rate like U.S. state capacity at this point um, at the federal government level? Uh, wow, big question. Uh, appropriate <laughs> for a podcast where we discuss big ideas. Um, look, yes. I think there that the relationship between state capacity to execute things is is not necessarily yeah. directly related to the effectiveness of institutions. So take the the China example you just gave. Um, certainly, right. the Chinese government has the an extraordinary ability to lock down their citizens, to prevent them from moving, to monitor every single thing that they do. Um, now. Uh, just because you have the ability to affect a result that you that you want to uh, that you want to implement doesn't mean that you actually uh, want that result. And so, uh, what I would say is that uh, is that U.S. institutions, um, broadly speaking, are actually designed to uh, to deliver. Um, I'm not going to say optimal results, but a, a better result than more often than not over time, and more often than you know more state directed uh, state directed systems. Where you uh, where you maybe have greater state capacity to execute things, but the things you're the the goals of of the of of that uh, you know the, or the the ends at which you direct this enormous state capacity aren't necessarily the the ends that that you want to see over time. And and what I'd say is, you know, in the U.S., when they're you know. Most decisions that government is are faced with where there is not great state capacity to do things are actually quite complicated, right? So let's take, for right. example, you know, environmental issues. Uh, certainly, we all want to, you know, we all want clean air, clean water, protect the environment. Um, but, uh, you know, climate change activists would be very, are very frustrated with their inability to move any particular legislation through Congress um, or uh, 
some legislation through Congress, uh, at least, right. uh, that would um, curtail the, the use of, of fossil fuels. But on the other hand, um, it's a complicated issue, right? So, the, you know, net, net human flourish, or many can argue that human flourishing is, in fact, aided by the usage of fossil fuels, even if you properly account for the harmful effects of, of climate change. And so, um, you know, the reason why we often have institutions that seemingly aren't able to, you know, develop instant solutions that that are perfect are because these problems are complicated. And what I'd say is when when issues or when the when the go, the end state you want to get to is quite clear, actually we have pretty remarkable ability to move very quickly. So, you know, I just think in the last couple of weeks, uh, you know, the response to to this fear hurricane down in Florida, you know, when it is clear that what we need to do is to uh, you know, rebuild communities to save lives, we have enormous state capacity to do that. I think about the pandemic and the economic shock we face from COVID and the position that our entire government, not just the Trump administration, not just the, you know, the Democratic Senate, our entire government faced as a result of the economic shock from COVID. And what we saw in that period was an extraordinary bipartisan coalition come together to pass the CARES Act within a, you know, a period of really 10 days. The CARES Act was, was negotiated, the largest fiscal package in, in U.S. economic, in U.S. history, right? $2.4 trillion. That was negotiated in a 10 day period. And it passed the Senate unanimously um, and really was the key to the U.S.'s uh, relative outperformance during the, the shock from COVID uh, compared to, uh, you know, other other countries around around the world. And and so I think we can do th big things when the you know, what we're trying to achieve is quite clear. The system moves slower where the, the questions are more nuanced and the outcomes you want to achieve uh, are, are less clear. And, and that's kind of how the system's designed to work. And so uh, I still have tremendous faith in our institutions and our ability to, to uh, you know, build a country that, uh, that uh, is going to thrive over the long term. That's great. No, that's that's really cool. You're definitely an outlier um, uh, from from most of our guests who are, are generally quite bearish. It's, it's cool to hear like someone who's actually been on the inside uh, presenting more of a, a bullish case on our, our ability to actually do things here in the U.S. Um, that's that, that's it's quite inspiring. It's, it's really cool. Um, well, Dan, I want to talk about ESG a little bit now uh, in your current project and, and Amber Wave Partners. Can you talk a little bit about Amber Wave Partners, what it is, what it's doing, and kind of why it's important? Uh, sure. So um, I guess first I'll just, uh, you know, give a, a, a quick overview of the firm. Um, so at Amberwave, you know, we have a number of investment products that, that we offer to investors. Um, one is a, is a strategy that um, is a long-only equity strategy, and that's a fund that's, you know, available broadly to, to, uh, to investors out there uh, because it's an exchange-traded fund or, or an ETF, which is something that some of your listeners may have heard about. Uh, and that's a fund that's really designed to take advantage of long-term trends that we see in the global economy that uh, are going to cause the, the you know the the companies that are taking advantage of those trends to outperform over time. We also think those trends are generally long aligned with U.S. interests over time, and so there is there you know there is kind of a, a you know potential non pecuniary benefit as well. But but the strategy is really designed around returns for investors. And then we also have an alternative investing business, you know, hedge fund essentially um, that makes uh, you know bets in, in in many directions on currencies, commodities, uh, and uh, and and government rates primarily. Um, but the the genesis of the firm really grew up around what we were seeing in in the financial markets, which is the increasing intersection between investment performance and public policy. 
And so we focus on it from the perspective of trying to identify trends in global markets uh, where uh, we can take you know advantage uh, of of our insight into the policy process and to the development of international economic affairs in order to generate outperformance. Um, but the debates around policy is implications for markets are not just centered around you know which particular companies are going to outperform over time because there's been this increasing trend in the financial sector towards ESG, which is which is something that I'm sure your your uh, your listeners have have heard of. You know, it's it's remarkably become you know a talking point at political rallies on on both sides over over the last year or so, uh, which is which is pretty which is pretty remarkable development given where 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 the sort of uh, world came from, um, you know, just just a short short number of years ago. And so, you know, I think to really discuss ESG and the role it plays in our markets. It's first really important to define ESG um, because there are a number of competing interpretations, and you know this issue cuts across so many different sectors, right? Asset management, banking, you know, financial regulation, capital markets regulation. It touches on the real economy. It touches on antitrust issues and market structure issues. So there are just a lot of angles to this. So I think it's important to to unpack what what's really meant by ESG. And so uh, you know, really, there are like two core different ways to think about about ESG. Um, one is, well, first, actually, I think it's important to nest ESG within uh, within kind of a broader landscape. And, and I think it'll be clear what I, what I mean when I, you know, when I go through those two core uh, approaches that I, that I mentioned. So ESG stands for environmental, social and governance investing. Um, the the monic you might ask yourself you know why are those three letters stuck together to represent an entire investing movement that uh, you know that accounts by some counts upwards of forty trillion dollars in assets under management uh, and it's a great question I don't really know the answer why at this stage other than path dependence and really if you look back over the history you know the moniker ESG was developed. Um, in the early 2000s, originally in, in a working group uh, under the United Nations, and over time has developed to be the market standard for what I think a lot of people mean as everything other than traditional financial investing. Uh, and there are two ways to think about that, right? And and one way, and these are sort of the two uh, the two schools of ESG that I was talking about. So one way to think about that is. I'm not focused on investment return. What I'm focused on is actually driving outcomes that push corporations and push the economy in the direction on environmental, social, and governance that I want to see. And I may actually be willing to sacrifice investment return in order to invest in companies that are delivering great outcomes on those three criteria. The second approach uh, is an approach that actually focuses on investment return. And so the second approach is is what's called ESG risk analysis. The idea being, if I'm able to think about a company's environmental profile, its social profile, its governance profile, companies that do better on those criteria that I care about are going to outperform over time. Um, and what I'd say is there is a, a there is a lot of uh, evidence in the market that that it's not actually true that that at least as ESG is practiced today. Um, uh, that it can uh, generate sustainable outperformance over time. Um, but as a theoretical matter, 
there's actually nothing wrong with that approach, right? Um, it could it could be the case that a company's environmental uh, uh, impact is going to result in, for example, you know, greater government re- government regulation, or it's going to um, harm the company's uh, or it's going to harm the company's uh, perception amongst consumers. Um, that is a you know perfectly rational, logical approach to take as an investor. But the problem is. Uh, in the standard itself, right? Why would you only think about the environment, social impacts, and governance uh, impacts, um, and leave out all the other things that matter to to investors? Like, for example, supply chain security, which we've learned, uh, you know, the hard way over the last two years or so. And so, uh, you know, the ESG movement, I think, is well intentioned on from an ESG risk perspective. But it's really become an industry standard in a way that there's no, you know, there's no ideological, there's no coherent justification for why ESG has become a market standard. There's no reason why it should be just E, just E, just E, just S, and just G. Um, there's no logical linkage between those. There's no coherent way to measure trade-offs amongst the three of them. And there's no coherent answer for why other risks that aren't traditionally thought of as either pecuniary or within uh, the ESG field should be taken into account. And critically, you cannot reduce something as complicated as a company's environmental, social, and governance score down or performance down into a single score and then rank it in a coherent fashion across you know, the enormously complicated capital markets that we have. Uh, and so the, you know, the, the market having, having uh, embraced ESG as the market standard has really created a number of inefficiencies that, that we see um, that have resulted in suboptimal outcomes for investors and also suboptimal allocation of capital across society, um, which has made it more difficult to, for example, uh, uh, attract financing for new fossil fuel development. Can you talk about that a little bit, just how ESG has affected? Um, well, well, first, I, I want to back up a little bit uh, and, and talk generally about how the the biggest asset managers work, what they are, and, and why they have like such influence on companies like like you say like downstream effects like okay fossil fuel companies there's a lot of there's classes of companies that are having trouble accessing capital now but backing up can you talk about like the vanguards the black rocks of the world uh, these really big asset managers and, and why they're important and why they have so much influence now if that makes sense sure so um as a general matter, uh, you know, investing up until about 20 years or so was really dominated by what what, what we call active management. That's right. So these are these are managers who investment managers who uh, take funds from you know retire aspiring retirees, ordinary citizens, and invest them in companies that they think are going to deliver outperformance over time. Right. So think Warren Buffett, classic classic active manager. Um, in the last decade and a half, two decades. With you know unprecedented global coordination between fiscal and monetary authorities that suppressed volatility, suppressed interest rates, the tendency instead, rather than differentiated performance by individual uh, individual uh, companies and therefore individual active managers, the tendency was actually broader the market generally rising, and so with that evolved a style of investing called. Passive investing, or or uh, or investing, uh, or beta investing, right? So, if active investing is generating alpha based on the outperformance of individual securities, beta is in, is instead 
your portfolio going up in value because the market as a whole is going up in value. And that's really been an investment strategy that has worked very, very well over the last you know, decade and a half as rates were low, volatility uh, uh, was, was low as, as well. Uh, and so markets tended to inflate and, and, and rise together. Um, the way that investors actually get exposure to beta or passive investing is through what's, what's frequently called an index fund. And these are funds that um, anyone can go out and, and invest in, you know, on a on a stock exchange through your through your broker, uh, you know, brokerage account, your uh, you know your financial advisor, anyone, and literally you buy a share in this fund, and then the money you pay to buy a share of this fund, the company that sponsors the fund then takes that money and invests it in every single stock in the S and P five hundred, for example, for you know what is generally the most popular index fund. Um, and it invests that money in the proportion of you know the market capitalization of the s and p five hundred overall. And so you could say that your investment fund, your the passive fund you bought into, is exposed to the entire u s. stock market. Um, the as a result of you know passive investing uh, being the feature here, there you don't have to pay individual uh, managers a lot of money to do a lot of you know very detailed due diligence on individual stocks, and so the fees are are quite low, which is part of the reason why the the strategy has been very appealing for everyone. And so, um, and so what you've seen is that rush of of money into these index funds that historically have competed primarily on price, and this is a space because it's highly regulated. Um, because it requires, you know, a number of of complex uh, financial functions, including custody, including uh, including uh, you know transfer agent, uh, all sorts of, of of financial functions. This is a space where scale really matters, and so the economics of the industry work in a way where uh, the vast majority of passive investment funds have ended up in the hands of three very large asset managers. Um, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, although there are you know a handful of other ones as well, and that's why you often hear about you know the big three in asset management that collectively control roughly twenty percent of the uh, of the outstanding stock in every company in the S and P five hundred. Right, it's it's an enormous concentration of of, of ownership in these three fir- firms, and for much of the industry's uh, for much of the industry's history. Most of the competition between the passive managers was on the basis of price, right? And so that's why you saw a steady decline in fees uh, in, in index funds to the point where, in, you know, no S and P five hundred index fund you're gonna you're not gonna see them charging more than ten basis points, right, or one tenth of one percent on an annual basis. Very, very, very cheap. And so. For a long time, the competition was over fees, but fees have kind of reached an end state where it's very, very difficult to uh, to offer these products for for less less money than they than the asset managers are currently charging, and so instead, some of them have tried to differentiate themselves on the basis of what's called stewardship, meaning um, you know you your investors should care not just about how much they're you're charging them, but also you own shares in all these companies. How are you helping to create value at these companies? How are you influencing these companies? And is the way that you're influencing these companies consistent with what your investors are asking you to? And so stewardship has really become the emerging front in uh, in differentiate in asset managers differentiating themselves. And that's where you've seen a lot of this ESG uh, you know type behavior across stewardship. So what does that mean? Well, 
There are really uh, two major ways that an asset manager interacts with a portfolio company or a company who shares it owns. The most obvious way that people talk about most frequently is proxy voting. So as a shareholder of a company, um, there are a bunch of things on which uh, shareholders are entitled to vote as owners of the the corporation. Um, Most frequently, that's at an annual meeting where, among other things, the board of directors is, is elected. But there are also proposals that the companies can put forward or indeed that shareholders can put forward um, that uh, that allow shareholders to uh, have some input into the into the company. And I won't get into the, the details around, you know, binding proposals, non-binding proposals. You know, it's complicated. But the, the gist is shareholders get a, get a, get the ability to have a say via their vote. And so proxy voting is one way that asset managers exert their influence on on their portfolio companies and all of the large asset managers have very, very large stewardship teams that go through proxy voting. I mean, we do that at our firm. We, we you know, we, for each of our uh, portfolio companies and our public equity fund, you know, we're digging through uh, proxies and, and voting our, our shares in the way we think it should be voted. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is what's called, often referred to as engagement. And the way to think of this is if proxy voting is hard power, right? So an actual action that a shareholder can take. Uh, engagement is really the soft power, right? So it's the signaling effect and the soft influence that investors have over corporate actions because the corporations know these investors are going to vote their shares. And so if I make them unhappy on something they're just you know suggesting I do or talking uh, or saying is important to them, they may go against me in in the vote. And so you know engagement is probably actually the most important way that asset managers. Uh, that asset managers shape the behavior of, of engagement. You know, one mechanism that's that's gotten a lot of attention in recent years is Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, writes a uh, what's called a CEO letter to the CEO, you know, all American CEOs every year, where he lays out a variety of things that are important to BlackRock, including in recent years. Um, environmental, social, and, and governance criteria, and the mere fact that a large shareholder is telling like, these corporations that uh, that these issues are important to them means that that uh, you know they, there is there is some that the, that the company should be taking these things or they think they need they should be taking these things into account to please their large shareholders who they will need to elect the board of directors that they want to uh, that they want to reelect to you know approve a merger if it ever goes through and take any number of corporate actions that are necessary uh, where shareholder input is necessary. Man, that that that's really really interesting. I I love this. Yes, you, you've clarified a lot of things in my mind. It, so I, for the audience, it, I, Dan, I, I want to go through s- some things that have changed and just highlight some interesting things there. Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong about any of these things. It, it seems like there so there's been this shift from you know active investing. You know, Eugene Fama comes along. You know, wins the Nobel Prize for you know theories about you know okay, um, asset prices are just like random walks. You know, you can't really predict. Uh, you can't really have strong opinions about the future um, because the markets are quite efficient. So, what do you need to do? Um, Jack Bogle will create, will create an index for you. You can hold the index. Um, you just go long um, on the stock market and you hold a tiny bit of every single company uh, and you retire on that in the future. Um, uh, that that's become dominant. Fees are the only thing that matters if you take that strategy. So you know these big asset managers start competing on fees. Then you have automatic contributions for, from people's four hundred one ks. People just you know they're opted into most of these now. So you're opted into your four hundred one k. It's automatically buying the index you know every month for you for your retirement. You're not even thinking about it. Um, and this over time has become an even bigger and bigger portion of um, the stock market. Are there's these three players? You know, you State Street, Vanguard, and BlackRock, 
and they control something like 20% of, uh, you know, every publicly traded company in the U.S. And, you know, they're now starting to compete on brand, which is ESG, and how we can actually kind of differentiate ourselves between our competitors and, and, and kind of escape competition at some level. Is that correct? Yeah, as, as, a, as, a, as a broad matter, that describes the industry structure that has grown up over the last 20 years or so. Now, I would say as an active manager myself, I yes. do think there's plenty of opportunity for active management to outperform. And indeed, you know, we, our, our funds, since we've launched them, have outperformed the market. Um, but it's difficult and it requires a great deal of skill. And there certainly has been, you know, a very, very powerful trend towards low fee indexing, which has delivered great returns for, you know, many investors. Um, so, so I'd say indexing is often a solution to uh, to you know inability to access really high quality managers because you know active management while it can outperform there are you know many many out- active managers who are not going to outperform and so indexing can be a you know cost efficient way to solve that that manager selection issue. That makes sense. That, that, that makes makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so I, I want to double click on ESG here, and, and, and you know, Larry Fink. Let, let's say he's coming in, and he says, you know, hey, uh, Apple, I really wanted you to think about the environment. I want you to think about governments, uh, governance, and uh, policy. All these these you know these harebrained schemes I have about how you should run your company. You should start thinking about this uh, more. What are kind of the negative effects downstream for like uh, you know American consumers when uh, you know you have Larry Fink telling uh, companies to you know don't focus on profit so much instead focus over on these like uh, the, these three ideals I have and, and they're important. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. So uh, you know to be perfectly honest, I don't want to pick on Larry Fink individually okay. because I don't think the issue is is BlackRock or, or Larry Fink's approach and their view that certain ESG criteria can be material to financial performance over time. The real issue is in the, you know, the coherent influence or sorry, the 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 unified influence of the ESG uh, movement across the asset management industry and the myopic focus on ESG that you get as a result at the expense of lots of other philosophies that um, that may drive shareholder return over time, right? So as I said at the at the outset, there isn't necessarily a coherent relationship between the environmental prong, the social prong, and the governance prong. In fact, it sort of seems like three things that people just glom together because it rolled off the tongue nicely. Yeah, sounds um, nice. So as a result, it can't really serve as an industry standard and have any kind of coherent uh, force in pushing the capital markets in a direction where it's gonna they're going to generate better returns for investors over time or more positive impacts for society. And so really the, the problem that we're facing is that ESG is the market standard and there are no other competing uh, you know, value sets that uh, that that are influencing corporations uh, just like ESG is, and so it's not a Larry Fink issue. And if Larry Fink had a number of other competitors that were focused on a you know different, more diverse array of concerns, like for example supply chain security, like for example uh, exposure to China, uh, which is clearly business risk, um, I think you would see better corporate behavior and therefore better returns for investors. And generally, better outcomes for uh, for society because uh, what tends because there tends to be alignment between corporate profitability, returns for investors, 
productivity enhancements, um, you know, improved quality of life for employees, investors, and, and various other stakeholders that touch on on uh, on these on corporations. And so, really, the issue is the unanimity of the factors that the invest that the asset management industry is putting forward as those that are important to be con- to be considered, which which come down largely to climate change and diversity. You know, which should not be ignored, which are things that that folks need to think about. But really, what we need is a more a, div- a more diverse array of of priorities to shine through. Uh, that can help move corporations in the direction uh, of thinking about some of these other risks that are just as important to the bottom line and to society. That makes sense. So it's not so much the problem that they have different like these priorities. It's just that um, there are many other priorities that could compete with the this, and it's just become just myopic, and we're all just focused on these three because reasons, right? There's just like some emetic, you know, pressure, and everyone just has begun, you know, got on the train and is not thinking about everything else that matters that we could be thinking we we could put as a priority. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, and and I should also just clarify. You know that is when I say you know ESG is okay. I mean I mean within the confines of people who are actually trying to link ESG to investment returns over time, right? There is a, you know there is a, a related school that I talked about, which is the so-called ESG impact school, where investors are willing to sacrifice financial return in exchange for seeing certain outcomes, right? Whether that's better environmental practices or or you know whatever they might want. Um, that's fine if investors are explicitly signing up for it, um, but it's actually not okay if investors are not. And in fact, in tax advantage retirement plans, which are generally subject either to ERISA at the federal level or uh, you know a number of, of fiduciary duty uh, obligations under state law, um, that's generally actually illegal uh, because fiduciaries are required to only consider the pecuniary benefits for uh, for uh, beneficiaries. They're not permitted to consider unrelated or ancillary social goals, and so you know when I say ESG um, is okay in theory, what I mean is ESG that is that is used as a risk tool to help identify uh, uh, sources of outperformance for investors uh, is is a theoretically uh, uh, acceptable construct. Um, it becomes very difficult to believe that uh, that it's being used in that way. When you see uh, the three largest asset managers and, and a whole host of other uh, 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 counterparties in the in the in and in investment managers in the financial sector rely on ESG as really their you know their entire non pecuniary risk screen, um, because it can't be the case that those are the only three things that are material to investment return. Right. Right. Absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense, and it does seem like a real challenge when you have, you know. A lot of the money that that's flowing into these asset managers, it is automatic, and it's not like you can really choose these. Oftentimes, and it's difficult to escape. Like when they're the three biggest players, um, uh, it, but but that's something you're working on. Is that there there should be more options here in the space where people can can put their money um, and focus on on kind of different priorities. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you know, in, in in our case, we have uh, 
an investment product um, called the IUSA ETF. Uh, so that's the the ticker IUSA. Uh, and really, with with IUSA, what we're hoping to achieve is not um, is not you know a different shareholder engagement strategy, but actually outperformance over time, right? So the analogy for us to ESG would be well, ESG. Uh, managers think about selecting individual stocks based on their ESG exposure because they think ESG is going to outperform over time. We take a different perspective. So we focus on big trends that we think are going to drive investment performance over time. And those are corporations' exposure to U.S. jobs, U.S. security, and U.S. economic growth. And so really what we're looking for in our portfolio is relatively more resilient business models that have better labor practices, that have more relatively more secure supply chain, right? Less less exposure to geopolitical risks. Um, and we try to offer that package within the confines of a diversified financial product that will have really the you know a a similar risk level to some of these large index funds that track the broadly diversified market. Um, but deliver outsized exposure to these, uh, you know, job security and growth, or JSG rather than ESG factors. Uh, and so, since we launched that product, uh, you know, earlier this year, I guess it's going on about ten months or so, we've delivered about two and a half percent of outperformance versus the S and P five hundred with essentially the same uh, same risk level. Uh, and so, so we think it's it's possible to use, you know, non pecuniary. Investment factors in in delivering better returns for investors, and and you know we just focus on a different set of non pecuniary or traditionally non pecuniary factors uh, than ESG, right? We focus on on job security and growth, and it turns out those factors, while people may think of them as non pecuniary, are pecuniary, <laughs> uh, which is why we've actually outperformed the the market since we've since we've started. Uh, what's your theory on on why you've been able to you know find this twenty dollar bill on the sidewalk? Do you, do you have like a have you tried to conceptualize why it would be the case that you know other people have missed it? Is it just because so much money does flow towards these other kind of uh, you know ESG goals uh, at some level that, that that leaves this kind of alpha available, or is there something else? Yeah, I, I, look, I, what I'd say is um, there are lots of ways to uh, to outperform. Um, so what we've identified is, is one where we've you know married up our perspective on where the global ec- economy is headed, the importance of resilient business models, particularly in the context of you know heightened volatility across borders, um, and tried to engineer a financial product that can beat the re- market as a result by of taking advantage of those forces. Um, but uh, there are lots of other ways to you know to develop uh, you know theses around outperformance. I mean, including in, for example, our, our alternative strategy, uh, where we uh, where we uh, bet on the direction of you know or the relative strength of currencies, commodities, uh, and uh, and interest rate differentials between between countries. And so, um, I, you know, look, I don't want to like. Claim that you know we're the you know we've somehow uh, you know invented uh, you know the 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 absolute uh, you know pinnacle of, of of the investment space. There are lots of ways to make money, but I, I think one th- one reason why IUSA has been successful from an investment perspective um, is because there's an underappreciated relationship in the market between geopolitical outcomes uh, and investment returns and. It, in some ways, that should be something that the ESG movement is is thinking about in the context of thinking about non-traditional risks. Um, but really, the myopic focus on ESG priorities, I think, gets in the way of them picking up on some of these other trends that are really shaping the global economy and therefore have the ability to uh, to uh, generate outperformance over time. That makes sense. And it also, uh, given your personal experience, you know, working in Afghanistan. 
with these geopolitical issues with the airline industry during the pandemic, yeah, you know, you've got a, you've got a, you've got a unique view on how geopolitical uh, factors can affect uh, the day to day lives and markets generally. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And you know, just to give you some some concrete ways in which these things matter, and for example, when we uh, when we launched the initial portfolio for IUSA, it was in January of, of 2021, so, or sorry, 2022. So this was, this was well before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But something that we were absolutely focused on, as I mentioned, is supply chain security, right? So um, within, and, and this applies within every sector, right? Because a technology company can have supply chain exposure to geopolitical flashpoints, whether that's in, you know, by having a software firm that has contractors and or employees in in Eastern Europe, um, you know, which is which is often a hub for many of these firms. You know, whether that's a uh, an energy firm that's um, you know has customers in East Asia, or uh, you know is is heavily exposed to to transit costs, um, or it could be a materials firm, right? That uh, that specializes in making fertilizers. And so, just to give you one concrete example in the fertilizer space. When we uh, when we launched our portfolio, we tried to include companies in the fertilizer space that are have relatively more secure supply chains, right? So one company that's features pretty heavily in our portfolio is a company called Mosaic. Um, this is a unique fertilizer firm in that it it. Uh, sources almost all of its uh, inputs, um, so those could be you know fertilizer precursors or, or gas, which is uh, or natural gas, which is a large input for the fertilizer process from North America. Um, people maybe didn't realize that uh, Russia and Ukraine are some of the largest exporters of uh, fertilizer, you know, finished fertilizer and fertilizer precursors uh, in the world. And so when uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Companies like Mosaic that did not have exposure to international supply chains like some of their other uh, counterparts in the fertilizer space uh, greatly outperformed because they had a, a safer, more secure supply chain that enabled them to 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 uh, to, to uh, you know continue to meet deliveries uh, in an effective way. And so, you know, doing the hard work around the geopolitical implications of you know uh, of of um, of conflicts, you know, of of sanctions, of you know, a whole host of of, of uh, international incidents um, can actually result in sustained outperformance over time. Uh, we think, and so really, what we're focused on is those more resilient business models that we expect to hold up better during this heightened period of volatility. That's that's really cool. It sounds like a actually a lot of fun to try and uh, you know analyze these and figure out uh, you know who truly is resilient, who will uh, kind of flourish a, as uh, the macro conditions continue with this like heightened level of volatility um, over the next kind of decade or so. I, I, how do you expect the the macro environment to evolve over the next decade or two? Do you expect things will just kind of get you know even even crazier over time? You know, it, it, all the prediction markets have the risk of thermonuclear war kind of you know ticking up. You know, something like ten percent. You know, due to you know maybe Putin gets a little frustrated and does something stupid in in the Donbass or something like that. Um, but do you see things calming down, or do you think, see things just continuing to get um, even? It, it seems like things are just like accelerating at some level. Well, I'm not going to handicap the the uh, the chance of nuclear warfare because uh, I'm I'm sure I'm sure I'll be wrong and it's you know hard exercise <laughs> to engage in. But but really, the insight that led us to found our firm and and design investment strategies around some of these you know major trends is what we saw as the paradigm in the global economy and international affairs generally um, really shifting. So over the last thirty years, markets, the global economy generally 
has really been uh, on a path of ever closer integration, right? So ever closer globalization, more cooperation, more trade flows, uh, the suppression of volatility via cooperation between fiscal and and monetary policymakers uh, globally. And really what we're seeing as a result of the pandemic uh, and as a result of, of you know a number of other geopolitical forces, in particular uh, uh, the increasing hostility between the U.S. and China, as well as Russia's um, revanchist behavior, is what we're seeing is that globalization is going into reverse. And so, a lot of the assumptions that underpin globalization, along the lines of you know countries not um, not using their economic interests to further particular security objectives, uh, have really proven to be uh, to be not the case. And so what we're seeing now is is the unwind of globalization, which by definition is going to increase volatility, both in markets and and also in terms of geopolitical relationships uh, over time. And so that really is the is the durable trend that we think is going to prevail in the global economy for the next decade, for the next decade at least, um, you know, and, and much further. And that's going to touch on every aspect of our economic life. Right? It's going to touch on our energy supply. Uh, it's going to touch on supply chains for uh, for every single industry. I mean, in particular, uh, technologically sensitive goods. I mean, we've seen what's happened in the semiconductor space, which is a space that we're, that we're heavily invested in and focused on, given the obvious imperative for the U.S., to reduce our supply chain vulnerabilities uh, to our principal uh, geopolitical, um, uh, I'm not going to say adversary, but um, but uh, competitor, uh, uh, China. All right, we we simply as as an, as an economic matter cannot take the chance that one day we're going to wake up and find out that uh, TSMC has has or Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the world's largest uh, semiconductor manufacturer, which is based in Taiwan. Has gone offline because the Chinese have have moved against Taiwan, uh, and so really we see these type of forces reshaping the global economy and moving from this posture of globalization into deglobalization, and that's a process that's by definition going to be inflationary, right? Because costs of of these products are going to go up, and it's worth them going up for the national security benefits of not having these these exposures. Um, so it's going to be inflationary. That's going to result in differentials in monetary policy between uh, between uh, monetary authorities across the globe. It's also going to require uh, you know more public investment from heavily uh, already you know heavily extended uh, fiscal authorities, right? Who have much less de- much less debt capacity than they did a decade and a half ago. Uh, and so it's going to stretch fiscal budgets. Uh, it's going to cause a lot of a lot of uh, you know um, uh, challenges to the global economy, uh, and it's a process that's necessary, and it's a process that flows from you know the fundamentals uh, in international relations, which have not changed you know in in many many decades, right? It's still a an international arena where nation states, private entities, um, uh, you know, a variety of actors compete for advantage, uh, and it's really the the competition for advantage vis a vis our geopolitical uh, our geopolitical competitors. Uh, that is going to create that increased tension in the global economy, that increased volatility in the global economy, uh, which creates opportunities for investors and also big, big, big risks. Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm, I'm curious, Dan. I do you think we've obviously hit peak globalization? We did a couple of years ago, and, and things are, have either stagnated or, or they are in reverse. And the pandemic, like, called the top at some level, at least in my mind. Um, 
I, I remember in the pandemic, my sister, she worked in Eastern North Carolina for a pharmaceutical company, and it is the only vaccine filling plant that was left in the entire United States. It all had been offshore to China, except for this one plant in like, you know, you know, rural North Carolina. And I was just struck by that in the sense that if we don't build more strategic capacity in the US, we have a real problem. If something happened to that plant, you know, it was like we were in big trouble. There, there was no way we could rebuild that in, in a timely fashion. Um, do you think we will see more reshoring of strategic assets like that? And, and what can we do as individual citizens to help encourage that to happen? Sure. So, uh, uh, you know, pharmaceuticals are a great, great industry to point to as, as you know, being highly vulnerable to uh, the the offshoring that we've seen over the last couple of decades. I mean, I talked about semiconductors, uh, which is an obvious one given the disruptions in, in semiconductor supplies we've seen. But pharmaceuticals are much the same case, right? Uh, and it's it's not just China. You know, it's India. It's it's a number of jurisdictions which um, which tend to to provide uh, uh, you know biological manufacturing. Um, that is something that we desperately need. Like, for example, in the event that we have a global pandemic and need to produce a, you know, a whole host of pharmaceutical products. I mean, think, for example, of our inability to produce PPE early on right. in the pandemic, yes. right? We, it, we turned out that we had forgotten how to attach two uh, plastic loops to a piece of cloth. Really embarrassing. In order, right, exactly right. And so, and so, and, and by the way, why did that happen, right? So why did that happen? Uh, because corporations and you know U.S. U.S. society generally found uh, or decided that the lower cost of those products was worth the heightened risk of disruption uh, in the supply of those products at any given moment. That assumption worked out in a period where you didn't have geopolitical tensions and uh, and volatility in financial markets. But given the way the economic paradigm is moving, that Calculus is no longer is no longer valid, and so we believe there's actually absent government support a market incentive for companies to invest in reshoring, nearshoring, right, or at least making their business models more resilient, so that they know when these shocks uh, come, which are only going to become more and more uh, frequent. Um, their business models are going to hold up better and they're going to be able to outperform over time and take market share from their competitors who are relatively more exposed to some of these disruptions. So number one, we think there's a you know business case for, for more resilient business models, but there's also absolutely a case here for industrial policy. And you know, industrial policy, I think, oftentimes gets kind of a, a bad rap um, for good reason, right? We we see the government isn't necessarily a great allocator of resources and and isn't good at picking winners and losers in the private economy, particularly when you're talking about you know next level technologies uh, and those sorts of things. Um, but no one's suggesting that the U.S. should move towards a central planning model when they advocate for increased industrial policy. Really, I think the smart industrial policy is an industrial policy that recognizes the particular security vulnerabilities the U.S. has as a result of the nature of our supply chains in semiconductors, which is obvious, pharmaceuticals, as you mentioned, you know, battery, battery manufacturing uh, as, uh, as battery storage technology becomes increasingly important. Um, there are a whole host of industries where you can str- be strategic and thoughtful about the U.S.'s exposure to geopolitical hotspots and try to encourage vis-a-vis a uh, you know, variety of, of, of incentives and spending from the government uh, this kind of reshoring or at least at, at a minimum reshoring. 
And the most important thing that that ordinary citizens can do, um, I would say on you know on the industrial policy front, it's really you know make this an issue that policymakers have to grapple with, right? Um, make this an issue uh, that that all politicians should focus on. Um, you know, r- raise questions around how is the U.S. going to outcompete uh, China and lots of other competitors, and and ensure that you know my life is better than it otherwise would be in the event that we have these geopolitical shocks. Where I know I'm still going to be able to, you know, access the products and services I need to have a happy, healthy, and fulfilling uh, life. Um, in the event that we have some of these geopolitical disruptions, that's wise. That's wise. That's good, um, Dan. I, I've got one more, one more question for you here, uh, and this this goes around your your kind of personal motivation. We cut this if you'd like, but for for you personally, you know, you're a super smart guy. You know, you've worked at Treasury, you've worked at Goldman, uh, you've got a law degree. Uh, why focus on this issue in particular? Why spend your time working on it? Uh, sure. Well, well, for me, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting as you know that I've, I've kind of worked in different policy arenas, but over time, I've gravitated more towards economic policy and, and markets in particular. And I think often, sometimes, you know, things that, that one thing that people have have a hard time conceptualizing is what exactly the the impact of of uh, someone's work in in the markets area is whether that's as an economic policymaker in government, or whether that's as a capital markets participant, um, and the reason that is is because the 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 impact on individuals I would say is more attenuated, right? So it's you're going to get much less kind of you know individual one on one impact out of working in economic policy than you would out of working um, in healthcare, for example, you know where you're able to really make a dramatic impact. On one individual's life, um, or you know, a number of individuals' life, but but it's going to be a relatively small number because you're just limited by how much time you have in the day. You know, in economic policy, what really attracted me to it was the ability to have just enormous reach in the type of impact that you're having. And so the way I think about it is, you know, if I'm headed in, in one particular direction, you know, let's take healthcare as an example. Um, you know, you can make a dramatic impact in say ten people's lives. But in economic policy, let's say you make an extremely small marginal benefit, uh, marginal impact in people's lives, but you make that impact across tens, hundreds of millions of, of, of lives. And so, you know, when you think about the aggregate benefit that's delivered across the spectrum, it can absolutely be a huge, huge transformative impact. And that's that's really what attracts me to economic policymaking and what attracts me to, to participating in the markets. It's... It's really the the breadth of the impact you, that you can have, even if the depth when 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 you go down to the individual level um, is going to be smaller than than it would be in in lots of other kind of more direct areas. Makes a lot of sense. I, I love that. I love that. Well, Dan, um, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. Where can people find you? Where should we send them? Uh, sure. So um, uh, you can find all of my writing on our website, which is amberwavepartners.com. Uh, and uh, you can see uh, other information about our, our various investment products, including the the long only business and our and our alternatives. Uh, uh, excuse me, our alternative product there. And um, we also tweet a decent amount from our from our firm account on Twitter, which is Amber Wave Partners or at Amber Wave Partners, uh, where we uh, post all sorts of thoughts about macroeconomics uh, and uh, international economic policy. That's great. That's great. Well, Dan, thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Great to be with you, Will. Take care. Special thanks to our sponsor, 
Bismarck Analysis for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.